This is Darian speaking. All right. So tell me if this is the worst thing. Um, and I, I'm talking here about a September New York Times article. This woman who is fleeing Hurricane Irma looks at a, a ticket price change and sees that Delta has jumped her ticket from $547.50 to $2,258, uh, still 50 cents. And I assume this has to do with the artificial intelligence that recognized a bunch of people want to buy tickets, specifically her at this time, and then soaked her. Uh, and that there is a few senators, Richard Blumenthal and Edward Markey, who are trying to look into this thing as price gouging. How bad is this? This is Darian Bates. This is Toby Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots, the podcast where we talk about how we make our technology and how our technology makes us. First of all, Tobias, Toby, before we jump into this, uh, your your question, uh, let's give people a little bit of an introduction to um, the stories we tell our robots. This podcast, this is our this is our pilot podcast. But right, so <laughs> so it seemed apropos we talked about airlines. Um, right. To just give you a little background on myself, um, again, my name is Darian Bates. I run, I'm the head of strategy and the founding principal of the company Dataleo. And we do big data customer engagement or big data marketing if you want to be gauche about it. And uh, so I work in this. I work in this big data automation, machine learning, kind of everything that um, is, is kind of indicating the end of civilization. That's what I do. And uh, I think it's uh, you, you and I have, uh, by the way, we're brothers. You and I have uh, had any number of interesting conversations, and we thought we would uh, turn this into a podcast. Now, maybe it'll make more sense why we felt that uh, after you introduce yourself. Yeah, and so uh, I'm Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates, or Toby, as I will be known in this podcast. I'm best known for being Brian Bates' brother. Um <laughs> Specifically, I am a lecturer at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I did my PhD at University of California, Davis. And I do work on technological histories and the ways that they change how we do so we storytell socially, things like Frankenstein, H.G. Wells' Time Machine, but then also how roboticists tell stories right now about what robots are supposed to do and how the public perceives and interprets these stories. Um, how politics affect the way we live our lives and how things like artificial intelligence, standard time, and these mass technologies configure as modern society. Right, and I think it's important to kind of point something out here, uh, this question of stories and this question of narrative. And, um, you know, we are, we are both by breeding um, language people. We are, we are the, the son of a father or the sons of a father. Um, I hope so. Yes, we're, we're, we're multiple people. Um, we are the, the sons from a father who is uh, an English professor, and you have yourself kind of become a quasi-English professor. You are technically an English professor, um, although you are doing a lot of this work under these kind of these, these 
kind of narrative discovery and narrative structures that are now being used in technology. And I, and I think this question of stories kind of gets at the heart of a lot of the way that humans think and in some ways a lot of the ways that humans are making robots think. Can, does, that, does that sum it up well? I think I'm kind of putting words in your mouth. Maybe yeah, that's okay. I, I, I love having words in my mouth. That's where I tend to keep <laughs> them. Um, and I think that for me, part of the impulse for, for doing this podcast is, is one, I have a lot of historical context. I have a lot of abstract kind of cultural, social, philosophical theory. Um, what I don't have necessarily is marketing expertise and sort of wheels on the ground knowledge, which is I think what you have very specifically. And uh, e even more sort of general discontent with the sort of TED Talk version of how information circulates with people who say artificial intelligence informs every part of our daily lives. And you say, well, wait, what does that mean? Where? Which mm -hmm. one? Can point to me and show me how that thing works, like with airline prices uh, in this particular case, because it seems potentially horrible. Right. Well, let's, uh, let's take that segue and let's go into... Uh Let's go into the download about what's actually, from a technical side, what's going on with airline prices there. So just to remind you about our intro, people fleeing Hurricane Irma potentially gouged for a lot of money, um, potentially unable to afford airline prices, which seems horrible in the path of a devastating nat natural disaster. Exactly. And, the, and your question here is, First of all, what's going on, and is is this the worst thing ever? Is this, is this the end of civilization? And yes. um, so first, let's talk, let's talk about what's going on from a technical perspective. So um, the concept of these these airline ticket prices going up and down. There's actually a, a term for it in the industry. It's, it's dynamic pricing. And um, if you think about the you know the concept itself, it's if you have kind of an elementary knowledge of Adam Smith's kind of market economics, this kind of invisible hand of the market, um, this idea of some, I always like the idea that it's like a Scooby-Doo villain sort of thing. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's funny you say that because I feel like the invisible hand of the market is at times um, either, a, it's, it's either as fake or as real as a Scooby-Doo villain. Sometimes it feels like they are the, uh, it, it is, it is, is kind of all encompassing or it is it is it is fear fearsome and at times it feels like it's uh something that gets foiled regularly by those 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 meddling kids. Right. Um, so someone says, Oh man, who knew that the opioid epidemic was actually caused by the free market? <laughs> I would have gotten away to it too if it wasn't for you, you know, nosy kids. You meddling regulations, yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. So um, but the, but if you have a general understanding of this idea of supply and demand, um, the idea that the, the the more demand there is for something, um, the less and the less supply there is for something, the higher the cost of something, right? That is this kind of elementary idea, and this idea of, of dynamic pricing in for airline tickets functions along those lines in in many ways, and yet there's um, there's, there's actually nuance to it and actually how dynamic pricing is happening and actually how it's evolving. So there's actually three things that generally go into the dynamic pricing on airline tickets. One is this kind of classic supply and demand, right? More people need tickets, the price goes up. Less people need tickets, the price um, 
the price goes down, hopefully with the purpose of getting more people to buy tickets because they're, they're, they're lower and cheaper. Um, with the idea of, of um, optimizing, and here's the term that you see here, optimizing or maximizing, but actually even be a better term, expected marginal seat revenue. This is, so they're, they're changing fares in real time, um, not only on a given route, but into kind of the whole network of their flights for the sake of making the most money as possible on any individual seat. Right? So that's, that's this idea of expected marginal seat revenue. And the first way of doing it is supply and demand. Um, and they can, and, and these tickets are changing constantly as the, the, as they are selling and there's few of them available, the prices go up. And, and that seems very intuitive, uh, if, again, if you have this general idea of this kind of economic structure. But the other side of it is actually it gets a little bit, that doesn't say, well, what happens, how do they price it even before there's any demand at any given point? Um, so there's actually dynamic pricing by route. Some routes are going to be more expensive. Some routes are going to be cheaper. Um, and they're going to be more expensive and cheaper at different times. So I, I was reading an article the other day that was talking about like a, a London to Macau, right? A, a major financial hub to an entertainment, a kind of an international um, gambling entertainment um, city destination. Um, tends to be more expensive fares because the assumption is, is that these are fairly well-to-do um, travelers who are going on a vacation of some sort. So their base pricing is going to be higher, just, assume, just assuming that you're already starting with a clientele who has more money. The second part of that is that the base pricing will be higher at different times. So while a New York to Chicago flight might be actually priced lower further out, because a New York to Chicago flight is very business-oriented. Business travelers are going to New York to Chicago on a daily basis. Um, as you get down to this um, kind of the travel day itself, or just the, the day of the ticket, um, prices go up on that business um, flight because business travelers tend to price their tend to buy their tickets at the last minute. Um, people who are vacationing or leisure travelers buy the tickets further out, and so the pricing on those Macau London to Macau tickets are more likely to be um, high later on and actually might go down as you get to it. So the route, the so route um, pricing. If you're, if you're fleeing a natural disaster from an expensive place and you want to flee the disaster to a gambling location, resort area, then you're, you're really going to get crushed. Well, I mean, actually, maybe not, because if if you're trying to get from London to Macau, say, because of, I don't, actually, I don't know what national disasters hit London. I don't know, their food, maybe. The, um, <laughs> hey, oh. Um, you actually, the pricing may actually more op may be more optimal on that leisure um, route, because the pricing tends to go down at the last minute, because people tend to book their tickets further out. People tend not to make these kind of leisure tickets uh, decisions at the last minute, so that might actually be a better better get than um, maybe something that's a bit more um, kind of localized or something. Anyway, um, but the final thing that is really interesting right now is pricing by passenger profile, and you're seeing more and more of this. Where this is where big data, machine learning, and stuff is really becoming um, kind of ingrained and really starting to affect kind of how these tickets are priced, where the the things that the system now knows about me may actually change 
the pricing. So if you think about the route and the supply and demand factors being as factors that are related to the, the overall contextual environment, my personal profile may actually be affecting my pricing. So there are, there are things about me that the system starts knowing. So I'm a, I'm a business traveler and I'm a, uh, I tend to travel on weekdays. I, I'm, I've shown a predilection to when they come out and do that thing where they say, hey, we're overbooked. Would somebody be willing to take a, uh, change their ticket? I tend to do that. They have that information. So there's all these things about who I am and my behaviors and my interactions with them that are starting to be factored into how they would price the ticket for me personally. Um, and that's that's where things get really interesting and also maybe get sort of questionable about... Uh, yeah, I mean, so that's sort of like social media insofar as your your social media feeds use what they know about you to feed you things that you they, they think are more likely to get your eyes on the screen. But Precisely. it's just all being used to get your money on the table? A little bit. Or it's getting... it's. I mean, money in this case, let's, I would actually almost recommend to think of the term not just as money, but to get my value on the table. Because my value may not always be in the form of money. My value may be in the form of, of, of other elements to it. Um, and, I mean, other elements, um, such as my flexibility might be a value. My willingness to give up my seat without having to be pulled, kicking and screaming off the plane, as we've, we've seen before, um, might actually be a real value. Like the, the idea that I go quietly. Might be considered. <laughs> this seems like a troubling thing for an artificial intelligence to be triangulating. <laughs> well, I don't know that they triangulate around my uh, my 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 sheep-like qualities or anything. But, <laughs> but so so that's that's kind of what's going on when we're talking about dynamic pricing. There's a, there's a lot of elements like in any statistical modeling there's a lot of things that can be factored in but in generally speaking you're looking at those those three things so then my you know my my, my questions for you then is you know do we even have so you have we have this this kind of tension that's arising around this idea of dynamic pricing and everyone seems to know this, right? Everyone seems to know that ticket prices go up when demand goes up. I don't think anybody is shocked to hear that ticket prices only went through the roof when people are trying to get away from a hurricane. So, but why do we have a problem? So why do we have a problem with that? That seems like it's, isn't that the story that we tell ourselves about how this entire kind of industry works? Yeah, but I mean, I, I think, one, dynamic pricing, it, it, I, I worry about words like, dynamism and disruption and empathy and, and some of these terms that seem to operate along the lines of um, complex business speak, which, which you know, m may just be a sort of academic pseudo paranoia of, of marketing language in general. It doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. I was going to say, I don't know that business speak out jargons the jargon of academia. Oh, no, not in the least. Not in the least. I, I, I was just trying to do a mea culpa before I start <laughs> into my next point that um, uh, one of the reasons... Right, you, you, you've laid the groundwork. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the other. I'm not about to do this, but now watch me do this. Um, exactly. I'm totally fallible. Now let me give you my infallible... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... 
Um, I, I think part of what's difficult about it, right, that, that we're dealing with a lot of next, nested social contexts here, not just in terms of do we expect, you know, companies to charge more for things that are worth more, which seems like a sort of basic uh, term of capitalism, but rather specifically what do we think about the social contract of, the, of transportation writ large that, one, mass transportation, historically speaking, is, is very new, you know, trains, planes and automobiles uh, in, in the grand historical arc of the human race are, are just, you know, a moment moment, you know, the, mm -hmm. the kind of Carl Sagan cosmic, you know, universal history, humans in the universal year, right? Let's say the history of Earth as a planet, if we lay it out over an entire year, humans show up, I think, 90 seconds before midnight. Um, right. And then if you think about mass transportation, it would, it's like a, a portion of a portion of a portion of our existence as a human species. So one, that's un unuseful context. But two, at a certain point in industrialization, there's this recognition that mass transportation is really good for doing things like imperialism, expansion, connecting economies, modernizing so social structures and this sort of thing. And so there's kind of a contract that governments or industry will build and facilitate these mass transit systems and then that but they need to be a social good in some way and regulation so far as i can tell happens uh very in a very interventionist strategy from the state uh, there's a great there's a great book on this by wolfgang Schivelbusch called the railway journey about the industrialization of time and space that in order to get modern economies working the way that they are we need to get modern humans moving in these mass transit systems. And so it's troubling when the logic of those systems becomes computized, or that, if that's a word that I just made up, that... Okay, yeah, actually, I need, I'm gonna sound very academic here for a second. I need you to unpack that just a little bit in terms of computized. Like, like when you say it's troubling when these systems become computized, um, yeah, I need, I need to understand that a bit better because to me, those, these systems have always been, I mean, if, if what I'm hearing you say is that these systems have always been about, have only been about since industrialization, like these mass transit systems, haven't they always been to a certain degree computized, whatever that term means? Yeah, <laughs> I guess uh, specifically we could say sort of abstracted in these sort of rational orders. So a good example of this, uh, an Adam Abstracted in rational, wait, 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 abstracted in rational orders. Yeah, so th here's an example of this. Adam Smith, during the, the period when we're transitioning from mass transit as a thing we do with horses and coaches to a thing we do with railroads, um, part of the arguments borrowed from him that were used by the railroad industry at the beginning of the 19th century were, hey, it takes one-eighth of the resources to make a train run that it would take to make a horse run. We say like one-eighth the amount of coal per horse feed. Therefore, mm -hmm. if we switch to trains, we will free up like this additional fraction of resources that we can feed to starving people in the country. Mm. And then there's this argument that we, we abstract this real thing, horses or trains, into a sort of rational idea. We will now have seven parts of free food, and then th that food can feed starving people. This is not what happens with that food. That food is, is simply a sort of rationalization. 
Um, and that there's a danger to this and, and that like technological process sold under the story of a certain kind of rationalizing. Um, so anyway, as far back around as I can, back to sort of airline pricing, this idea is one thing when, when some, you know, fat cat capitalist in a top hat with a monocle says, let's, let's drive up prices. There's somebody making that decision and that, that person is culpable for that decision. That person is, is, can speak to it in, in a court or to the public or to an individual and we can adjudicate that. But when it's a machine and when it's only, it seems that if it will only be machines from now on, the whole thing becomes sort of invisible to the public. And if that invisibility also results in people being stopped from fleeing from natural disasters, it seems like it's no longer a public good. It seems like it's only an economic good to those corporations. So that's very interesting, and and just to kind of give you, I mean, just to kind of allow you to kind of bring us up to the present moment for this historical context of these, the this historical narratives that we've been kind of inscribing at least to ourselves about the value of transportation. It sounds to me like you're saying we've we've come to believe that transportation is written into the public good. And it reached yeah. into this idea that almost at the point of a right, like we have a right to transportation. Um, yeah. and, at the, and at the same time, it's not actually, in most cases, a public utility that um, other than something like the, the you know, the, the metro systems of major cities, most of our transit systems are not, in fact, public. They are, they are private enterprises. And that there's something yeah. going on there that that there's something going on in how we view those things that creates kind of a, a, a conflict and a certain amount of um, contradictory feelings. It, it, yeah. Can, can, can you explain that a little bit? Because I, yeah, I certainly they're, feel it. They're, they're private enterprises that make their argument in the voice of the public good. Um, and so he, there's a couple of examples of this. And they're not necessarily wrong, I want to say, that like... This is this is a form of argumentation. It's not necessarily a disingenuous one. That if you take the the kind of current state of thinking about the future of autonomous cars, the the number that you'll see over and over and over and over again is thirty thousand people die every year in car accidents. If autonomous cars have accidents at only a fraction of the rate of real people, because they're not texting and driving or drunk or otherwise impaired whatever the thing, then you say, well, we will save so many lives every year. This is a public good, even though the development and profits of that technology may very well mostly aggregate to private corporations. And this right. is important because right, public consumers need to buy these things in order for this to be successful. So there's a sort of social contract implicit in all of this. Right. And in the annals of business history, um, there are I think some of our, our wealthiest people have come about because of transportation. I mean, our wealthiest people, if you think of the, the railroads and um, let's see if I can see if I can do my like my Mount Rushmore of industrialists and see how many of them are actually directly related to transportation. So you think about like you have the, the, the Henry Fords, which I guess is a little bit later on the on the spectrum of our kind of the Gilded Era. Gilded Age industrialists, but you have the Carnegies, right? Um, or Carnegie? I don't know. I feel yeah. like I now, when I was the NPR, I was your Carnegie. <laughs> um, 
the the Carnegies who became who were kind of I guess they were first barges but went into rail and kind of made the huge fortune on rail. There were um, coal, there was coal, there was fuel, there was oil and gas. Um, all of this is is heavily transportation based. Is that right? Yeah, and don't forget steel. And steel, right? Of course, steel. Um, and if, if this was a historical podcast, we'd spend time actually, um, and I'd be more embarrassed by the fact that I can't list everybody's names who kind of became rich from each of those commodities. I mean, there's but a lot of the, them. Right, exactly. Well, that was a, that was a, that was a time to time to be rich that then and now. Um, so so okay, so I get it. I get it, but now let me let me let's do this thing in terms of these looking at kind of how we're kind of going at this. And let's let me let me provide an argument for you about okay, so it sounds like you're saying there's there's conflict here, but it's it's a good thing. Like it's a good thing that that these private enterprises are doing this. And let me let me give you an argument about why that is. So yeah, um, and let me plan, let me phrase the question in the aggressive way, and then you can answer it. I think in the practical yeah. way, uh, exactly. is the American public getting taken by the airline industry in these using these artificial intelligence dynamic pricing modes? Perfect. That is a, that's a it's a great argument, and or it's a great question. And let me let me provide you an argument about why why they're not, or at least provide. And this will be this is more like why they are not yet, perhaps. Be a way to <laughs> oh, no. Um, so the the airline industry, like a lot of our transportation industries, as you were saying, is um, is still highly regulated. But it used to be very highly regulated. It used to be that even something like ticket pricing was regulated. Um, prior to 1979, there was actually a there was actually a floor to ticket prices for airlines. Um, they they weren't actually allowed to drop the tickets below a certain amount, with the idea that this was this was supporting kind of airline profits and and airline the viability of airlines as a commercial enterprise. So they would tickets would only be a certain amount, and so then then only a certain number of people could actually afford them. So t- so air, but there were a lot of airlines. So there were a lot of airlines. Tickets couldn't go be, below a certain amount. And what ended up happening is you had a lot of half full flights that not that many people could afford. And then 1979 comes around, um, or 1978 comes around, and, and Carter gets it into his head, President um, Jimmy Carter. And he, he kind of anointed the Cornell economist Alfred Kahn to take on this, this question of deregulation of the airline industry. And the U.S. Deregulation Act of 1978 um, would be the starting point when the government would no longer mandate prices. They would also roll back some other elements of regulation. Um, but they said, you know what? Sell your tickets on the free market. We're going we're gonna to let this invisible hand of, uh, of, of the market um, start to determine ticket prices. And over the next 30 years, I guess almost 40 at this point, you saw a significant drop-off in the pricing of tickets. Tickets became much more accessible to the point where, um, where before it was only business travelers, executives, fairly well-to-do people were traveling, tra- were traveling by planes. And I remember, you know, us growing up and on the on the fat cat salaries of a professor, 
of our, <laughs> yeah. of our father. You know, we traveled Christmas every year to Tennessee, from, from Maryland to Tennessee. But um, we mostly drove, car. I think. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's what, I mean. That's what I mean. We we traveled oh, yeah. by car. Like, there, we were not flying. Yeah, I mostly and, slept in the um, seat well of the back seat, which I don't think was very safe. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm pretty sure other regulations that we broke were things like seatbelt regulations. <laughs> and uh and so we're now at a point where the the difference in price between what a ticket used to be in nineteen seventy nine the average ticket price in today's dollars, the average domestic ticket price was six hundred and seventeen dollars. Oh wow. And, right. And that's and that's that's a one way average domestic price. And now Average ticket prices. Um, I think the latest report I read that they are now three hundred and sixty-six dollars. I mean, prices. how much? How much of that is because of the free hand of the market, and how much of that is just technological innovation? Like, is it cheaper for airliners to fly now because of engine improvements or this sort of thing? And certainly, certainly there are improvements. There's there's fuel efficiency. There's there's a number of ways, but it's it's there's no significant evidence that in most aspects of managing a plane that prices have actually gone down. I was looking at the, they had, there's an indexed kind of um, cost model that, or cost um, accounting that the airline industry does. And they've indexed, I think though, the index I was looking at, I think there's a better one out there and I wasn't able to track it down, but there's an index, index to 2000, the year 2000. And um sounds very indexed to the year 2000. Um, <laughs> When 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 everything changed, um, but uh, and I'm sure there's an index that goes back that that looks at the same cost that goes back. In fact, I think it goes back to 1977, and I wasn't able to find it, um, or at least wasn't able to find it without purchasing a significantly expensive um, industry study. Right. But it, 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 there's no evidence that costs have really gone down, and the major cost, um, 33% of in, of airline costs are human, are salaries, are, are paying wow. people. Um, so it's, it's, it's not clear that it's just driven down, like there's been some level of driving down airline costs and yet tickets are going for cheaper and meanwhile, airlines are more profitable than ever. So, I mean, this to me feels like, in fact, I think, uh, I think the number I saw said that, um, airlines this last year, 2016 airlines set a record profit of. I think 34 billion. Don't quote me on that one, but somewhere I think 34 billion dollars in profit. So everybody wins. Industry. Consumers everybody are paying wins. less, and airlines are making more. So what are we what are we complaining about? Right. So why are why are people unhappy, Mr. Narrative Man? Tell me, what are people thinking? That they're, <laughs> like, what's wrong with people? Why is it, like what stories are they listening to? Because because this looks great. Well, maybe the place to go is the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> Oh, is that the, is that the place to go? <laughs> uh, so anyone who's not aware of, of tales, um, it's a set of stories uh, from the 14th century. I want to say, man, I really. About to say, good good luck if you get that one wrong. You'll get a note uh, from the 15th from century. Dead. 1476, Geoffrey Chaucer. Um, and it's a, a, a cross-section of all these different people in society going on a pilgrimage and then the stories that they tell each other as they travel. And one of the interesting things about 
pilgrimages in the 15th century is that it was one of the few places where you'd get this nice clean cross section of society. Upper class people went on pilgrimages, the religious people went on pilgrimages, poor people went on pilgrimages. It was sort of uh, an aggregator of all these different social ranks, which didn't necessarily see each other in many other phases of their lives. And I, I wonder if that's sort of where airplanes are, sitting on this fulcrum of in, in many of the parts of our lives now, we find ourselves sort of segregated and sectioned off and existing in these little either internet echo chambers or very specific professional and domestic environments in which we don't see, you know, to, to use the hot, but, hot button term from last year, the, the 1%. Um, we certainly don't see them living like the 1% as we do when we are, are paraded sort of demeaningly through first class on the way to our increasingly small coach seat. <laughs> Um, so maybe it isn't so much about the price of the ticket, so much as, you know, the social space of the airplane. Mm, that's really interesting. So you're saying the way that it 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 overtly segments society so that we see ourselves in in relationship to other people's privilege is is where the dissatisfaction is coming in. Yeah, and there was an advertisement, and I wish I could remember the company, just the other day, where this guy, he's sitting back in coach, the baby, a baby is crying, there's some punk kid kicking his seat, everything is horrible, um, everyone is filthy and disgusting, and he sees up ahead, first class, and people are on sofas being served by beautiful stewardesses, and I think there's sort of an angelic music playing, and he, he finds himself drifting up towards the front, and then a stewardess comes up, smiles at him, and like, you know, kind of slams the curtain shut in his face. And then it says something along the lines of, you need to invest better, use this service. Um, right. And that this is, right. this is such a social norm that you can make an advertisement about it. That, that right. this sort of misery juxtaposed with leisure, the leisure is thrown in your face specifically in the, at the site of an airline. Um, right. It makes it makes me think of that Seinfeld episode uh, where the um, Elaine uh, is like she's she's flown first class and is never is can't go back. Right. It's this this idea that there's this urgency to kind of this this upward mobility and never looking back, um, or just at least the misery of of the of coach travel is 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 once you've once you've gotten out of it once you've left that cave you can't go back into it. Yeah, and there's a concern, I think, when looking at something like artificial intelligence, dynamic pricing, that this is now being written into code, that mm. machines are now purposefully creating this environment in which, like, want to escape a hurricane, all right, rich people, here's a thing only you right. can afford. Right, that's very interesting, and I kind of want to do two things with that, one, one of which is... Uh, it, it absolutely is being written into code. One of the things that um, airline marketing um, is increasingly doing this, which in general, there's a type of, there's a type of marketing strategy out there um, where you really highlight um, kind of the, the status, right? Stat, it's, it's actually called status marketing. Where what you're doing is you're you're the the value proposition you're making for for a target customer is not it, it's not that they're getting the best price for something it's that they are 
is that they're they're getting status, right? And in play, and in flying, that's huge, right? The the kind of you know sitting out in the waiting area as as they board, the number of different um, stones and precious metals that are now used to denote status. It's platinum status or emerald status or ruby status. It's like they list off like half of the like the minerals table to get people onto the flight. Right? <laughs> and, yeah. and I don't know if there's a minerals table. I don't think that's a thing. I'm not a scientist. But but the we idea, can make one. <laughs> we can make one. A table made out of minerals. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. So this is a huge thing. This is a huge thing to to sell people on status, and and you're selling people a value that if they were not in the in the act of flying, in the act of traveling, wouldn't be that valuable. You're selling people eight inches of legroom. You're selling people, you know, fairly mediocre but but fancy sounding food right like you could you could get off the plane and go to like a ruby tuesdays and probably get <laughs> the 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 level of food that you might be getting in first class so it's right. it's they're not they're not pouring dom perignon in the champagne actually i don't know maybe they are yeah, I don't they think might they're be. they might be but i think the very the very act of pouring you champagne is the point is the status it's not necessarily the quality of the champagne um let me fact check that and if i'm wrong on that i'll we'll add a little thing on the website that says darren was wrong on that but but the the idea in general that status has a huge value when you are in this situation in when you're in your canterbury tales pilgrimage <laughs> wherever you're going apparently yeah um that that's but that has enormous value, um, and but then that also has that also creates a level of dissatisfaction or a sense that that people are that we are that the the robots are taking away our humanity or something or that I mean and to be fair, plane travel can be fairly dehumanizing in general, right? You're you're taking off your shoes in front of people. I I find that fairly dehumanizing. Not to mention getting photographed in something that like sees through your clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it rarely is your personal space, you know, so much not your own. Right. All right. So, I guess the question is: so, the the, the one other thing that you said that I think is is worth pointing out or worth kind of looking at really quickly is this this idea of people people might be okay with a guy in a monocle. I mean, they have they have a person to be upset about a guy in a monocle making these decisions, but they're not necessarily they're very uncomfortable by a robot making those decisions. Can you elaborate just briefly on that? Because it actually it actually there's a direct relevance to the business and the marketing strategies of the airline. But I, I want to kind of unpack that to use your academic jargon for a second. Give me a little bit more about why people might be more comfortable with the monopoly man deciding their speed prices than they would with a robot. Yeah, I mean, there's a number of ways to approach this thing. I would say, <sighs> okay, um, maybe two two sort of crazy versions of this narratively. Um, one, like uh, American presidents get shot a lot, you know. <laughs> Relatively, I guess. I guess as a percentage of the total population of American presidents, sure. Right. Well, think about it. Like 45 American presidents. I feel like I could name four off the top of my head who've been shot. You know, Lincoln, Kennedy, Garfield, Reagan. 
um, Ford was shot at. <laughs> mm, right. <laughs> so I, I'm sure a historian could could provide a much more interesting list. But that, that you know, ten if ten percent of the people who take your job get shot, then uh, you know something's going on. And I think it has to do with the fact that the the idea of a a, a symbolic body, a person who is is the the decider, <laughs> to use George Bush's term, right? That this person is is responsible and all the all the danger and all the humanity that comes with that and that humans are we're incredibly 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 keyed to understanding humans i i forget exactly what the the numbers are but babies are able to understand you know thousands of facial variations within within only a few months of life that that form of communication is familiar, like literally of the family to us. Mm-hmm. But when a machine starts doing it, it, it presents the sort of two part. One, the sort of runaway fear of a kind of Terminator-ish future in which we are unable to cope with or come to terms with the process of our own destruction or control. And two, just a, a basic lack of understanding about what's happening to us. This idea that the things that are determining how we spend our budget, how we spend our time, who we elect to office, or what we see in in the media or how our money works, it, it's incredibly disempowering. And I think too, in, in the sort of American mythology, that's basically against the sort of narrative principles of the country, this idea of a kind of mechanistic force controlling what you do or how you do and that that force is unapproachable and and ununderstandable mm. or perhaps only understood by like a a specific kind of technocracy uh, that's really interesting so uh, so the, the the what that makes me think of is actually the response to um to our case study um, that you bring up, the story of the woman whose airline tickets go up. So, um, you know, generally speaking, the, the, the general term, this concept of price gouging, um, people think of it as being against the law or being something that you're not allowed to do. Um, and, and in some cases, there's 34 states that have um, anti-price gouging laws. Um, hmm. those, those laws are, even those states that have those, um, Texas is one of those, right? So they're during Hurricane Harvey when when water, there were some examples of water prices being water, you know, water being sold for like $99 or something like that. Oh, wow. um, there's actually, there was actually a hotline that you could call and report it because Texas actually has um, anti-price gouging laws during times of disaster. But that, those are fairly limited. They're generally referring to water, food, uh, fuel is, is one of those things that um, generally speaking, it's, it doesn't refer to airline tickets. Um, and but the other thing is the airline tickets aren't localized to a state. They're they're federal under federal regulation, and there is no federal price gouging laws or anti price gouging laws. Um, but the idea is is that well, you don't need to pass a law on price gouging. Public pressure will 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 correct. You know, they will will make the correction that that companies will there'll be an outcry about kind of a, a examples of price gouging, and, and companies will react. And we'll we'll put the kibosh on that. And in some ways, that that has happened. 
so during the when I think about people's comfort with a with a person rather than a machine, you know, the, this a lot of these stories of people complaining about price tickets, then price hikes on their plane tickets right at a time of natural disaster. You then have this people complain to social media, and then the response mm-hmm. on social media is, is like, "Oh, mon Dieu, what is our system doing?" Um, <laughs> so friendly. You know, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Shocked. To find that there's gambling going on, and 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 then they then they drop the ticket prices, right? So there's a you know a woman that I think that that had a six thousand dollar ticket price get dropped down to seven hundred. Um, of course, there would have been when they did this, all these tickets then sold, and there were no tickets. So it it didn't um, didn't make the availability any higher. It just made them more accessible. But so I, you know they say that's a that's a response. But it's almost like but it's a it is a it is a strategy, and I've done social media strategy for companies, and it is a strategy to show responsiveness, to show human responsiveness when the system seems like it's not treating people fairly. So and, you, you play good cop, good cop, bad cop with your own algorithm. Right. <laughs> exactly. Your social media is your good cop to your algorithmic bad cop. And, but, in some, but in some ways, isn't that like that's – in generally, it goes back to kind of that public-private relationship that we've always had with our travel, right? Like, generally speaking, private industry is going to make its best, you know, best effort to make the most money it possibly can, and then regulation or the government will step in, and when it says, no, you're not, you're not providing enough public good, we'll, we'll fix it. And that's just kind of that dynamic at play, right? It's like, well, our machines are helping us, and if we need to step in and fix it because they've overstepped, well, we're, you know, we're happy to do it. So maybe maybe I'll pose to you our our final conceptual question then. Apocalypse or utopia? Right. Uh, on a scale of these things, we'll say one being apocalypse, ten being utopia. Where does where does this fall for you? So where where does for so where would I peg? So is is dynamic airline pricing the a step towards kind of this utopian vision of of humanity achieving its all, or is it a step towards um, kind of the 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 fires of a uh, of a of a digital hell? Is that the yeah. <laughs> is that the there we go the you know robot apocalypse wh- whichever way robot you want to go exactly pretty soon we're plugged into machines and we're the energy source for. Her, yeah, um, <laughs> she's so inefficient. I always am like, why weren't the machines I, in the just using like really efficient bacteria to power themselves? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That that is the hole in the plot, by the way. Of, of um, <laughs> the only one, the Matrix. Yes. Um, all right. So, all right. So, since you asked the question, I'll I'll go first. Um, apocalypse or utopia? So I, despite being being in business, I, I let me just make the caveat that I'm not a I'm not a a cheerleader for all free market systems by any stretch. But I'm gonna I'm gonna give this I'm gonna give this a six. It's 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 yes there are some there are some concerning things certainly. Um, I you know we're all a little uncomfortable about somehow having record profits in the airline industry, although you know. It's, I mean, they wouldn't function otherwise, and it certainly has. The airline industry, by the way, has certainly gone through rough patches. It certainly has not been an unalloyed string of like profitable years. There have been bank bankruptcies and stuff for a variety of reasons. 
but you know, I just I get down to I'm going to sound like those people that say that Tom Brady is the best quarterback because he's won five Super Bowls, <laughs> but a little bit I'm going to kind of minimize this argument down to the fact is is more people are traveling for less, and the industry is is clearly sustainable to a certain degree, and that to me is is yeah I mean the, sure we we don't love we feel a little uncomfortable we don't like watching people drink champagne but you know. I, the fact is, is that people are able to get to where they need to be, and and more people of a wider range of economic and social and ethnic backgrounds are able to travel, and um, that seems good for people, good for society. So I'm going to say I'm going to say six, and as if I keep talking longer, I'm going to move myself up to a seven. So how about you? <laughs> give, give me uh, your give, give me your apocalypse utopian uh, scale there. I I, I think I I drop it around to four. Like this isn't this isn't the worst thing. We'll we will talk about worse things on this podcast. Maybe something kind of uplifting. I read the other day about how quickly when you pass gas in an airplane, it spreads to every part of the airplane. So just know that you know people in first class are getting it too when you uh, right. when you break wind. Which is all to say. <laughs> This seems symptomatic. Enjoy yourselves out there. Um, this seems symptomatic of a, a number of different things, and perhaps this is like a, a point where a lot of social tensions are expressed. But at least at the moment, this doesn't seem to be a, an ill in and of itself so much as an expression of other other social problems. Let me Let me try to get you to say that again. So you're saying that the the revolution that seems the populist revolution that seems imminent is being being felt and expressed in our reaction to airline travel but is not in fact being caused by airline travel right yeah i think that's exactly right well i guess if uh, if the apocalypse does come i i'm i'm storing up plenty of money to buy my um my tickets at a premium to get out Sounds good to me. Great. Well, thank you for our uh, our pilot episode of um, the stories we tell our robots. I uh, look forward to talking next week when we will talk about another subject. I'm aware, I don't know. We've decided it yet. This, we thought this thing might go up in flames entirely. So yeah, well, down in loop. flames, I suppose. I've got I've got someone at my office door, so I have to run randomly. All right. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Love you, ma'am. Love you. Bye. Bye.